The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And I've been waiting for this interview for a long time. From my alma mater, Boston University School of Medicine, we have the great privilege of having on this edition of Exploring Different Brains, Dr. Marsha Ratner, who is a neurotoxicologist. And she's got so many degrees and so many honors, I don't even know where to begin, except to say that she is a blogger for differentbrains.org, but that's the least of it. Marsha, welcome to differentbrains.org. Hi, Hacky. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's have you introduce yourself to our audience much better than I did. Let's hear it. That was pretty good. Um, as you said, I'm a, I'm a neurotoxicologist. That means I'm someone who studies the effects of chemicals on the nervous system in uh, humans and also in animals. And um, my training was here at Boston University School of Medicine in the Department of Neurology, where I trained with the late Robert Feldman, who at that time was chairman of neurology, who um, was also famous for working with the patients that gave rise to the film and book A Civil Action. And um, Bob was a famous neurotoxicologist, and he trained me. And um, when he passed away, I took over the the, the role of the neurotoxicologist here at Boston University School of Medicine. Well, I was so honored to be a student of Dr. Feldman when I was in medical school there. And uh, he used to tell me I shouldn't be boxing because my first year of medical school, I won the heavyweight golden gloves up in Lowell there. And he said, Hacky, you shouldn't be getting hit in the head like that. But I did... And he was a brilliant, brilliant man who did a lot for a lot of people. He was one of your um, best mentors, wasn't he? He was my number one mentor. I would say I learned almost everything I know from him about Parkinson's disease, neurodegenerative diseases in general, and of course, particularly neurotoxicants. When I was in school with Bob, I actually, can I hold up a book? Sure, Bob, absolutely. When, when I was in school with Bob, Bob wrote this book, um, Occupational Environmental Neurotoxicology, and I helped him write the book as a graduate student. And so that really was the core of my training and going through the literature and becoming familiar with neurotoxicology was my involvement with that. Give us the ABCs of neurotoxicology as it affects us, John Q. Public. That's a good question. So neurotoxicants, the word is a combination of the word neuro and toxicants. And so these are chemicals, as we said, that are going to get into the body. And once they enter the body, um, if they're small enough, they can get into the brain where they can raise havoc. And they can do many things. They can kill brain cells. They can cause brain cells to not function properly. And 
depending on when the exposure occurs, whether someone is young or old, and for how long it occurs, short or long periods of time, the effects can be very profound to minor and reversible. And no matter what we do, we're coming across these neurotoxicants in our everyday life. Every day we encounter chemicals in the workplace, the environment, in our foods, and of course, in our medications. And in fact, the most famous toxicologist ever was Paracelsus. And Paracelsus is famous for saying, there is none which is not a poison. The difference between a poison and a therapeutic is dose. And really, that's the gist of the balance between using chemicals safely when we need them and avoiding exposure levels that can make us sick. Now, you mentioned this can affect you in childhood or in old age. Why don't you take us through some of the age differences, if you might, just in a general way for us? Sure. So when we're children, our body is obviously not developed. And as we're developing from being in, in utero, you know, before we're born to through childhood and into adulthood, our brains are developing. And during this time, cells have to find their ultimate location in the structure of the brain. And some aspects of our bodies are not fully developed until we're 20, our nervous system is not fully developed until we're almost in our late 20s, early 30s. And so as the brain is developing um, in the earliest stages, before we're born and, and, and through the early stages of childhood, the blood-brain barrier, which is the protective coating that keeps toxins out, is not fully formed. And so if we're exposed to chemicals when we're children, those chemicals can easily get into the brain and cause a lot of trouble. And as we get older, the blood-brain barrier forms and grows and becomes sealed. And now the chemicals can't get in as easily, which is a good thing. It protects us from chemicals as adults. But during development, we're particularly vulnerable to chemicals. From your unique perspective, can you talk about the relationship between neurodiversity and neurotoxicants? Oh, yes. That's a big one. So, you know, the probably one of the most well-studied and, and saddest examples of neurodiversity and neurotoxicology happened in Minamata, uh, Japan, uh, uh, many, many years ago with mercury. Mercury had gotten into the environment. And when mercury released from old dental amalgams uh, gets into the environment, it gets methylated and becomes an organic form of mercury. And this mercury, more, it's more easy for this mercury to get into the brain and, and it's more toxic. And so if you're exposed to methylmercury in utero during development, the brain, like I said, is developing, it's very vulnerable. And this is when we see uh, neurodiversity that persists from the time the child is exposed well into the, the rest of their life be vision problems, uh, motor function problems, uh, very, very severe. Um, so uh, uh, another area of neurodiversity we worry about is developing children exposed to lead. So lead in old buildings, there's lead paint on the walls. Children tend to eat paint chips. They have pica 
and they ingest or there's construction going on in the building and now the old paint is being sanded or refinished. This kicks up dust. The children breathe it in. Their blood lead levels can go up. And this can cause lead, can cause uh, uh, neurodiversity if the lead exposure is high enough. Unfortunately, we don't see this too often anymore. It can cause a severe form of damage to the brain that, that can really, really leave a child with permanent neurological problems. And so uh, exposure to chemicals during this developmental window is, is really, really important to avoid. Which is a segue into, are you in a position to give us any comments on a place like Flint, Michigan? Yeah, we don't know yet what's going to happen. You know, there's a, certainly a big concern with the spills and, the, and these kinds of things going on. There's a lot of concern about what's going to, what we're going to see in Flint. And we know from past experiences what we might see emerge, right? And the data on that is still coming out. Um, and it's, we're going to see how that plays out. I think, fortunately, I haven't heard of any severe exposures yet, uh, resulting in any deaths or anything like that. Um, but certainly it's a big cause for concern. And this is uh, why we have the EPA, why we have the FDA, why we control what goes into the groundwater, into our rivers and lakes, and ultimately into our bodies. And if we can contain these spills, avoid these kinds of things, we can really minimize these risks. Marcia, since you spoke about mercury, and say I'm sitting in my differentbrains.org audience and I'm hearing this stuff for the first time and I'm going, wait, wait a minute. My doctor told me I ought to eat a lot of fish. And uh, I might like salmon, I might like other things. And I go to the supermarket and I get confused. I got farmed fish, I got fresh fish. I read different things. Big fish have different kinds of mercury. I don't know what I'm going to do, so I'm going to ask Marsha Ratner from Boston University, what's the story? So uh, the, the same principles apply. So for an adult, eating fish with the bioaccumulated levels of mercury that can occur is really not a problem because our blood-brain barriers are fully formed. And so the mercury has a hard time causing any trouble to an adult. But for children uh, who are in develop still developing, uh, we probably want to be thinking about what the source of that fish is and what levels of contamination it might have. Um, of course, most studies show that the benefits of eating a healthy diet with respect to mercury, pesticides, all of these things generally outweigh the risks. You know, when you consider going back 50, 100 years ago, before refrigeration, before we could get all these foods that we have access to today, and you look at life expectancy, and you look at morbidity and mortality, uh, in a lot of ways, um, we're, we get healthier, safer foods today. We don't have the you know, the contamination with bacteria, we, we have access to clean water, especially here in the United States. We, we, we shouldn't be too alarmed, particularly as adults, but with children, it's always a good idea 
to be a little more careful with respect to where you're sourcing your foods. Um, overall, how do we protect ourselves from unnecessary exposure to neurotoxicants? Well, that uh, begins with good hygiene. And that means if you're doing any sanding or working with old lead paint, you're going to want to wear a mask. You're going to want to wear gloves. And you're going to want to maybe wet the surface down so that the dust stays down and doesn't spread all over. And then uh, cleaning things up, you need to be careful. Um, there are terrible stories of people who've tried to vacuum up mercury that has spilled from a broken thermometer. And what they've done is their vacuum cleaner, this was mostly in the days before HEPA filters and some of the vacuums that we have now, but the vacuum cleaner actually vaporized the mercury, put it into the air and exposed everyone who was in the room. Whereas had they swept up the mercury with a dustpan, the little balls of mercury, they would not have caused as much of a problem. So there are a lot of things we can do from a hygiene standpoint to reduce exposure, masks, gloves, coveralls. And then also when we're cleaning things up, we want to think about the consequences of vacuuming versus sweeping and creating more dust or vaporizing a chemical that could get into the air and be breathed in that way. Tell us a bit about your exciting work where you've helped so many through the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Oh, Michael J. Fox. Yeah, I love the Parkinson's patients. You know, um, my, my work largely centers around adult neurodegenerative disease or adult neurodiversity. And the Parkinson's patients, uh, there's a lot of interest through the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences uh, in understanding the role of the environment in the risk for developing Parkinson's disease. There's been a lot of research in humans and animals that suggests that pesticides, solvents, and metals may play a role in the development and progression of Parkinson's disease. And um, the Parkinson's patients live a long time with this disease, and um, uh, they are on, on medications. They, they, they've got a lot of uh, movement issues that they're dealing with. And um, so I'm very interested in helping this population to have a better quality of life. And um, one of the things that I do is I advocate for them through Michael J. Fox, and I've gone down to D.C. And, and, uh, and, and done that. And it's not just me, Cory Booker and uh, famous uh, uh, other doctors like uh, uh, um, uh, Carly Tanner from the Parkinson's Institute, who's makes me a small fry when it comes to toxicology and Parkinson's disease. Carly really wrote the book. And, um, oh, you're the champion, Marsha. Well, we all are because, and so are you, Hacky. And, you know, but what's impressive to me about the Parkinson's community is because they're pretty mobile and able to, to, to work on their own behalf, they go down and they advocate for themselves. And I'm a big proponent of self-advocacy because the people that are living with neurodiversity really are the ones who can best explain what they need, what they need as far as research, as far as medications, as far as assistance, 
to help improve the quality of their lives. And it's really great to see, you know, people uh, out there advocating for themselves. So um, uh, it's always a pleasure to work with that population. I would say, well, you know, my father died of Alzheimer's and Parkinsonism, and we had a gas station in Jersey City, and he was the mechanic, and my mother pumped gas. And uh, back then, we didn't even have a lift in the 1950s to put the car up. So my father, when I was like six years old, I used to back up the car over the pit, and he would stand in the pit with his up to his ankles in oil and other solvents and whatever down there and change the oil and everything. And that was a constant diet of that, constantly. So I can't help but think about the science of neurotoxicants and what a service you're doing at this point for all of us with all that you're doing. Well, you know, it's a group effort. The EPA and OSHA uh, have reduced and changed a lot of those uh, exposures, right? And those pits uh, also accumulated uh, uh, gases like carbon monoxide and other chemicals could be down in those pits if the car was running. And so uh, th these were very dangerous settings. One of the patients that I saw with Bob when he was alive was a painter who would paint in enclosed spaces with no respirator, no ventilation, and they would, those were in the days when the paints contained toluene and other solvents, and they would be breathing in the fumes of these paints for hours until they became intoxicated from breathing in the fumes. And by the time he was in his late 40s, early 50s, he had severe cognitive problems, which stayed with him for the rest of his life he never developed Alzheimer's disease, but the cognitive deficits that he developed from years and years of exposure to the contaminants and the solvents and the paints uh, were, you know, very, 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 very bad. And and so, fortunately, we don't allow that anymore. We've changed those policies. But if you go outside of the United States, if you go to these developing countries. A lot of those policies are not yet in place. And so a lot of the poisonings that we used to see here in the U.S., we now see in Korea, <clears throat> in China, and in other developing countries where industry is booming and people are working in mines and they're, they're working <coughs> in industry. Uh, and, and now this is where we're seeing the most uh, uh, profound toxic effects uh, today, where the regulations that we have here don't exist yet. Hmm. You know, one of our board members at Different Brains is uh, Nick DeCristofaro, who's been my friend since he was at MIT and I was at BU, you know, 50 years ago. But um, Nick is now the director of technology for Solidia Tech, which makes green cement and goes all around the world. And he's got some people pulling for him, like, uh, you know, Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg, want to see them make this green uh, concrete and cement, which until I spoke to Nick about it, I did not realize that was the most ubiquitous thing in our whole universe here, where everything's made out of cement and concrete. Um, talk about the neurotoxicants in concrete and cement. So, um, cements and grouts 
uh, uh, contain uh, different kinds of chemicals. Uh, these can range from silica, which of course can cause lung problems, um, to metals and, and to um, the constituents of, of polymers. Um, for example, one of the most widely used grouts, it's not a cement per se, it's a grout, is acrylamide grout. <clears throat> and acrylamide is very toxic. It causes damage to the peripheral nervous system. These are the nerves that go from the spinal cord out to our tips of our fingers and tips of our toes. And these kinds of grouts, acrylamide, can cause the nerves to die. And people can develop weakness in their hands, weakness in their lower extremities and their feet and walking problems, gait problems. So uh, the, the, the constituents of these cements and these uh, uh, grouts contain polymers, and these polymers need to bind to each other. And to do that, they, they, they form a chemical structure that allows them to link. And that reaction can also lead to them interacting with the immune system, with the nervous system, where they can raise uh, all kinds of trouble. And so uh, minimizing exposure to breathing in the dust of the unfixed or the, the not yet polymerized uh, cement is very, very important. So again, a mask, reducing uh, intake of these chemicals is very important. I'm just learning so much. And I'm sure our audience is gonna wanna learn more about you. How do they learn more about you? Well, they can go to my website, but it's neurotoxicants.com, where they'll find a lot of information on chemicals that affect the adult nervous system that impact neurodiversity in adults, whether it's Alzheimer's, Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS, or Parkinson's. And um, uh, that's where you can find me and, and find out more about this topic. Um, and uh, I'm available to, I, I offer a pro bono consultations uh, once a, a week, uh, usually on Thursday evenings. I have set aside an hour or two to for pro bono consults where I'll give my uh, thoughts to anyone who wants to give me a ring or shoot me an email. Um, and uh, uh, so I'm easy to reach, easy to find, and very willing to um, uh, be available, affable, and uh, uh, to, to anyone who, who, who needs my help. How cool. You are one of my heroes, Marsha. Let me tell you, that is great. Um, is there anything else you'd like to discuss that we didn't get to today? Like I say, uh, there's a lot to know about chemicals, and we don't know everything. And uh, as I said in your blog, the best thing to do, because there's new chemicals being made every day, the best thing to do is whenever we're using something we're not sure of, we don't know what it is, wear a pair of gloves. You know, you can buy these uh, uh, nitrile gloves now in any uh, Home Depot store. I think you can now get them in the grocery store uh, or, the, or the auto parts store. Wear gloves. Wear a disposable mask if you're sanding old paint or doing anything that could, could kick up dust that might contain lead. Or if you're using a spray paint that might contain solvents. Wear a mask. Do it in a well-ventilated space. Minimize your exposure. And by all means, when it comes to your children, look at the labels, see what, what's in the food, see what's in the product, buy products from reliable sources where you know the, where they're being made and, and the constituents are. And, you know, that's really all we can do because chemicals are ubiquitous. And so we have to live not, 
not uh, scared, but with good precautions and, 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 and take proper care to make sure we use chemicals safely. Dr. Marsha Ratner from Boston University from neurotoxicants.com, thank you so much for being our guest on this edition of Exploring Different Brains, and I'm sure we're going to have you back soon at differentbrains.org. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.